0: Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response, plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms, and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief, and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match, which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morningcup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police we arrived, at they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. They say time heals all wounds. But what if those wounds never saw a resolution? On November 15, 1934, a young woman was born who would be tragically ripped from the world as it was entering its peak leaving behind a family who carried a gaping wound for decades while the man who killed her not only walked the earth completely without guilt, but walked into churches and continued his work as a priest. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Irene Garza was born on November 15, 1934, to Nicholas and Josefina Garza, local business owners living in McAllen, Texas. By the time Irene was a teenager, her family's dry-cleaning business had reached such success that the family was able to move into a more affluent area of McAllen, where Irene attended a predominantly white school, became the first Latina to become a twirler or head drum majorette, and was crowned the 1958 Miss All-South Texas Sweetheart, in addition to becoming the homecoming queen at Pan American College. She was a bright girl whose loving personality warmed the hearts of everyone she came into contact with, so it became no surprise when Irene took that love and used it to become a second grade teacher, working with indigent students on the south side of McAllen. Writing to a friend in 1960, Irene described herself as extremely shy, but nevertheless enjoyed the fulfillment she felt while teaching her students. In addition to teaching, Irene was a secretary of her parent-teacher association and was slowly but surely coming into her own, both in her professional life and in her personal one, making friends, dating a few men casually, and declaring she was the happiest she had ever been. A devout Catholic and member of the Legion of Mary, Irene continued that letter and told her friend how much comfort she gained by attending a daily mass and communion. The letter was postmarked April 9th, 1960. Seven days later, the 25-year-old schoolteacher borrowed her family car and made her way to church for confession, promising her mother she would be back soon. Hours passed, and worried they had not heard from her, Irene's parents assumed that she may have stayed for a midnight mass. But as 3 a.m. rolled around, they knew something was amiss and went straight to the McAllen Police Department, to report her missing. Several parishioners saw the striking beauty at her church that night, but no one could quite recall seeing her leave. And as police began their search for the young woman, a trail of evidence seemed to stretch all down McAllen Road, with passerbys finding her purse, left shoe, and lace veil discarded onto the ground. Soon, the search for Irene Garza became the largest in Rio Grande Valley history, and tips about her disappearance started to flood into the local police department, with one anonymous source even calling the Garza home and pretending to be Irene, saying she had been kidnapped and taken to a hotel in Hildago. That call, and the supposed confession to a local waitress from a man claiming he killed Irene, both ended up being cruel jokes. On April 20th, 1960, four days after she left for church, Irene Garza's body was found in a canal several miles away from all of her discarded belongings. Post-mortem examinations would later determine that her cause of death was suffocation, and found that the young woman had been beaten and raped while she lay unconscious. Unfortunately, any physical evidence connecting her killer to the crime was washed away inside of the canal. With nothing found on her body and no prints found on any of the discarded items, police did the best that they could and began questioning upwards of 50 people spanning across several Texas cities. They spoke to her family, any and all local sex offenders, Co-workers and ex-boyfriends, did about 50 different polygraph examinations, and offered a $2,500 reward, which was, at the time, larger than any reward amount previously offered in the area. A South Texas businessman would later up that amount to 10000 As people started rapidly being ruled out, police couldn't help but name one man as a person of interest. Father John Fate, the 27-year-old priest who heard Irene's last confession. According to her fellow parishioners, Father Fate's line moved rather slowly the night of Irene's disappearance and noticed that the priest had left the sanctuary several times throughout the night. And probably the most damning piece of evidence against the godly man was the fact that, when drained, the canal where Irene's body would eventually be found held a slide viewer belonging to Father Fate. Not to mention the scratch marks his fellow priests saw on his hands just after midnight mass and noted how strange it was that he took Irene's confession that night in the rectory rather than the confessional. When given a polygraph test, Father Feit's results showed that he passed, but later they were determined as inconclusive. When asked, Father Fate denied hearing Irene's confession that night in the rectory, but when asked again later, admitting to having done so. He claimed that the reason he was in and out of the sanctuary that night was because he had broken his glasses and had to drive back to the pastoral house that night to get his other pair. He had a bit of a habit of fiddling with his glasses while taking confession. When he arrived, he realized he had forgotten his key, so he had to climb into the house on the second window, scratching up his hands on the outside bricks. It seemed the priest had an answer to every question, and given his status, many had a hard time placing blame for such a nefarious act on a religious man. Police weren't so sure, but with nothing concrete to prove their suspicions, the priest was never arrested, and life went on. Well, kind of. Three weeks before Irene's death, a woman named Maria America Guerrera had been sexually assaulted while kneeling at the communion rail at a different Catholic church in the area. Rumor had it that Father Fate was responsible for the assault, but the local leaders discouraged parishioners from considering the possibility that a priest could be involved in such a crime. He later admitted to visiting a priest at that very church the day of Maria's attack, but of course denied assaulting the woman. He would later be charged with rape, but saved from any actual jail time due to a hung jury and a no-contest plea before his second trial. Years later, he would claim he did not understand the plea was considered a conviction and denied his involvement in the incident. After the legal proceedings, Father Fate was sent to the Assumption Abbey, a Trappist monastery in Missouri, where an abbot told monk Dale Tashney that there was some suspicion that Father Fate had actually killed someone recommending that he counsel Fate for a few months to determine if he had the disposition to become a monk. The monk would later claim that Father Fate confessed to hurting a young woman and killing another, but as it was not his job to judge the priest, his confession went unreported. Father Fate, not completely comfortable with the monastic lifestyle, decided to leave the abbey and was sent to New Mexico to a retreat for, quote, troubled priests. But He wasn't there for treatment. Father Fate joined the order as a staff member and worked his way into a supervisory role at the center where, at some point, a man named Father James Porter came in after having molested children during the 1960s. Father Fate cleared the offender for placement in another parish. He was later defrocked and imprisoned for abusing as many as 100 children. In the 1970s, Father Fate left the priesthood, went back to being called John, got married, moved to Phoenix, had three children, and worked for a charity for about 17 years. All the while, Irene Garza's murder sat frozen solid back in Texas. That was until 2002 when authorities in San Antonio got a call from Dale Tashney, the monk who had initially taken John Fate's confession and thought the incident occurred there, who claimed that he no longer wanted to keep his secret. With his call, Irene's case was reopened, and the Texas Ranger investigators contacted Father Joseph O'Brien, a priest who worked with John at the time of Irene's murder, who had previously claimed he had no clue about the case. Something about the investigator and time softened the priest, who now claimed he suspected John Fate at the time of the murder, and then went on to change his story one last time, admitting that the former priest had confessed to the murder shortly after Irene's body was found. With that and the updated polygraph results, John Fate yet again became their prime suspect. The DA of Hildago County, Renee Guerrera, chose not to bring John before a grand jury until 2004, and for some reason, Dale Tashney, Father O'Brien, and John Fate did not receive subpoenas in the case. The grand jury declined to indict John, and in 2005, Father O'Brien, one of their prime witnesses, passed away. D.A. Guerrero was reluctant to revisit the case due to what they claimed was shoddy police work in the beginning stages of the investigation, the fact that Father O'Brien had been suffering from dementia when he made his final confession, and the claim that the Texas Rangers had inappropriately fed Dale Tashney the location of the murder after the monk had mistakenly believed that it occurred in San Antonio. Going as far as to say, quote, why would anyone be haunted by her death? She died. Her killer got away. In 2014, a district court judge named Ricardo Rodriguez began his campaign to unseat Rene Guerrera, and as part of his campaign issue, said he wanted justice for Irene and her family, and if elected, he would reopen the case. He won, and days later, Rene Guerrera tried to appoint Ricardo Rodriguez as the special prosecutor in the Garza case. Ricardo declined and said he preferred to take a look once he took control of the district attorney's office in January of 2015. That April, he announced the case was officially reopened, and in February of 2016, 83-year-old John Fight was arrested in Scottsdale, Arizona, extradited back to Texas the next month, and incarcerated at an adult detention facility. He entered a plea of not guilty, was held on a $1 million bond, and the case began its initial hearings. On December 7th, 2018, John Fate was convicted of Irene Garza's murder, and despite arguments of his lack of convictions after the murder, his health, and his age, John was sentenced to life imprisonment. He died on February 12th, 2020, of natural causes. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to What Terrible Thing Happened on November 16th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.